when we look around the ancient world, we discover that in fact, this type of thinking is to be found all over the place. Freeing the thinking of human beings from that kind of largely spatial way of thinking about the divine is one of the crucial things that happened in late antiquity, especially in the early Christian period. And one of the drivers in that is Platonism. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever thought about the history of Christianity, specifically the history of Christianity in the first four, five, six centuries? Well, if you have, you may have noticed that there's a word that keeps coming up, and it's the word Platonism. Perhaps as you've read some of the church fathers, Augustine or Athanasius or Origen and so many others, you've noticed this. What though should we think about Platonism? Were the church fathers or the medieval scholastics, were they flirting with something that had the potential to corrupt Christianity? Or were they thinking about Platonism in a very intelligible way, a way that was quite sophisticated and even discerning? And what are we to think about Platonism itself? Was Platonism this ancient philosophy? Was this uh, merely a set of doctrines that uh, was just convenient for for Christianity at the time, something that we can just take or leave? Or was Platonism something far more profound, something that created an epic revolution in thinking about what transcendent reality is all about? And how do figures or church fathers, in fact, like Augustine, how did they wrestle with Platonism? How did Platonism even serve them even prior to becoming a Christian so that their eyes were open to certain things in Scripture they did not see before? And more practically, I think we could say, can this interaction with Platonism or what some have called Christian Platonism, does this have something to say about reality beyond the material, even the spiritual, the soul's ascent, its contemplation of God in the beatific vision. Well, as you can tell, this is a very deep, deep well to drink from because uh, we're not just talking about a philosophy or the history of Christianity, but we're actually talking about everything from metaphysics to ethics itself. In order to explore some of these deep waters, I have asked John Peter Kenny to come on the Credo podcast and to help us not only understand some of the history, but to give us some concrete examples of Christian Platonism itself. You may know John Peter Kenny from some of his books. He not only taught for I think around 24 years at St. Michael's College, but he's the author of many different books. Some that I'll just mention here are his book, Contemplation and Christianity, A Study in Augustine, as well as his book, On God, the Soul, Evil, and the Rise of Christianity. A very practical guide for those who may, well, this whole discussion is quite introductory to them. But I also want to mention a more recent volume uh, that he edited with Alexander Hampton called Christian Platonism, A History. This book is a collection of essays, uh, not just by them, but by some of the best scholars today, published by Cambridge University Press. Also, John Peter Kenny has a certain affinity for the church father Augustine. And so you may have seen a new book come out called Augustine and Tradition with Erdman's Publishing. He has a fantastic chapter in there called Augustine and the Platonists. John, uh, what a joy to have you finally come on the Credo Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Matthew. Thanks so much for inviting me. John, I think for some of our listeners, they've 
heard something along the lines of Christian Platonism here and there. But for some of them, this is a fascinating adventure for them. For some of them, they may be a little suspicious. For others, they're actually quite eager to jump into this conversation. But before we we start to uh, explore the ins and outs of Christian Platonism. We probably should start with just Platonism itself, because if we don't understand what it was about, we may be in danger of understanding how the church fathers interacted with it. John, help us here, because you have really lived so much of your career Uh, B.C. and A.D., uh, looking at uh, original sources to understand what Platonism was accomplishing. What is Platonism? And and maybe I could kind of lead you in this direction, not just what is Platonism, but why was Platonism so epic in terms of the way it changed and influenced how society at the time thought about reality? Well, that's a very, 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 very fascinating topic. So let's just take a minute for our listeners to sort of try to think together about the ancient world. And maybe if we try to get a little high altitude surveillance like that Chinese spy balloon that just went over and kind of survey the terrain of the ancient world, the first thing that you're struck by when you look at the way most people thought about the divine is that they thought in either material or quasi-material ways. That is, they thought about the divine world in terms that still related to space and to time. And we know when we now think about the divine, we tend to think of God as omnipresent, pure being, beyond space, beyond time, and there's a transition that has occurred somehow in Western culture, and the epicenter of that change occurs in the early Christian period. So if we're looking at the ancient world, we discover, and this is why Augustine's Confessions is so interesting, he tells us that all through his life, however highly educated he was, a rhetorician who studied some philosophy, tremendously successful, starts out in in North Africa and ends all the way up at the court as a rhetorician. That entire time, first being a catechumen in North Africa, tutored by his mother, a Catholic Christian, Orthodox Christian, Then he spends time as a Manichae, as a Gnostic Christian over a decade. And then when he decides perhaps he ought to be looking into, for a variety of reasons, the Orthodox Christian Catholic tradition again, he says that at that point in his life, he has never been able to understand God except in material ways. He cannot think of God as being anything other than some kind of energy that holds the world together or some kind of power that controls the world, but not entirely separate somehow from that world. And so when we look around the ancient world, we discover that in fact, this type of thinking is to be found all over the place, freeing the thinking of human beings from that kind of largely spatial way of thinking about the divine is one of the crucial things that happens in late antiquity, especially in the early Christian period. And one of the drivers in that is Platonism. So the concept that the Platonists put forward is this, that behind the world that we see the world of our senses, there is a deeper, eternal, intelligible level of reality outside of space, outside of time, outside of change, the world of immateriality, the world of deep transcendence. Now, clearly, the scriptures 
the biblical tradition have been working at a concept like this. But Platonism, because of its philosophical background, is extremely sharp and clear in articulating this. What Augustine tells us, and many of our listeners today, I'm sure, Matthew, have, have had a look at the Confessions. And if you haven't, I strongly urge you to take a look at Augustine's Confessions. It's an insider's guide to early Christianity and early Christian thinking. And what he tells us in Book 7 of the Confessions is that some of the uh, highly intellectual Christians that surrounded Bishop Ambrose in Milan, the great bishop uh, at the court, suggested to him that the ways that he thought in the past about Scripture which he says he thought was foolish because he had this materialist understanding of God. They said to him, no, 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 we don't really think like that because we believe that God, the God who became incarnate in Jesus Christ, is in fact a transcendent God, completely a transcendent creator who has revealed himself in space and time through the incarnation. And this is something that Augustine says he, he really couldn't understand. And so they said to him, go and read some of these Platonist books. And Augustine tells us in the seventh book of the Confessions that he got hold of these books of the Platonists, as he calls them, translated by a Christian senator who had converted, who had been himself a Platonist. And there... He read about this deeper understanding of reality. And he says he was absolutely blown away by it. Mm. And he says, once he grasped this radical idea of transcendence, then he could turn to the scriptures because now he could see the deeper meaning of the scriptures, which before he thought seemed very basic and not really very compelling. Now, Platonism, in that sense, was useful because it served to provide Augustine, and this is true of so many of the early Christian thinkers, all the way down the line from Justin Martyr on through, and especially all of the great Nicene thinkers, with a whole new way of understanding reality. And moreover, it allowed them as Christians to go toe-to-toe with the most sophisticated thinkers of the period who were the Platonist philosophers. Mm. So the first thing our, our listeners need to get hold of here is that there's a major transition going on in human thinking about, as it were, the place of the divine. Now think about this for a minute. In ancient religion, sacrifice was something that was ubiquitous. The pagans sacrificed constantly to the divine. And, you know, you could, you could do that in lots of different locations. We forget that the Jews did the same, right? Until the destruction of the temple in 70, Jews also sacrificed. Sacrifice has, as it were, a model in which you are sacrificing and sending up to some higher place in a quasi-materialist way, right? Your, your prayers up to a divine power. And this is still sticks around, doesn't it, in our, in our thinking? We, we, we see uh, people when they score in football. I, I, you know, I saw that recently. I saw someone <laughs> scores and you know, they look up into the into the heavens. This is a painful thing to me as a Patriots fan to discuss at the moment, but nonetheless, <laughs> Kansas City, you've seen that recently. Yes. Right? So, so somehow the spiritual vector is up and out. Now, when you take that away with this deeper concept of transcendence, in a sense, you no longer have to be thinking up and out. In fact, the spiritual vector shifts into the inner self, to the inner prayer. And for Augustine, that meant that he would be able now to read the scriptures and engage in an interior discussion 
down into the self and connect up through the scriptures and through the incarnation of Christ down into the absolute source of reality, which is the one, the good God. So the spiritual vector in this period begins to shift. So that's why Platonism seems to have been so important. And it, and it, it really just wipes away all of the other philosophical traditions. So by the time you get into the third century, it's, it's the regnant view. So this is a sort of transition, almost like the Copernican revolution or the theory of relativity, right? It's just a total game changer. And intellectuals all over the ancient world mm-hmm. begin to absorb this deeper understanding of reality. Now, the other thing that happens, again, back to our sort of high altitude analysis, and we all also know this, somehow there's a shift going on away from polytheism to monotheism, right? If you start in the period of Jesus, uh, the vast majority of people are polytheists except for the Jews. And by the time we get down to the Nicene period and beyond, monotheism is becoming increasingly regnant. What I've just been talking about, this concept of transcendence is tied up with this. And one of the things that we should realize and note is that in the philosophical tradition of the pagan, specifically the Platonists, there develops a philosophical form of monotheism centered on this idea of transcendence. Mm. So for the Platonists, there is, especially with this figure Plotinus, who lives from 205 to 270. He's, a, he's an Egyptian who ends up teaching in Rome. And what Plotinus does is pull together various strands in, in Platonism and articulate the idea that there is one good that is the source of all reality. And what he says is, and this is another enormous game changer, this is a totally unique idea. He says that that one is infinite. Mm. Now, up until that point, most thinkers shied away from the idea of infinitude because it seemed uncontrolled and confusing and so forth, like irrational numbers. But he says, oh, the ultimate source of reality is infinite. And what it has done is precipitate, as it were, out of its deep transcendence, finite reality specifically of the space and time world in which we live. Mm. This means then that the one, the good God, saturates, as it were, finite reality with the presence of its being. And this is why, of course, we exist and have our being as a result of the presence of the one everywhere. Now, that concept of monotheism combined with transcendence is why Platonism was so important. Now, what the great Nicene fathers do and other Christian intellectuals of the period is to jump onto this and articulate with exquisite clarity how Christianity can understand God in these terms and better understand its own scriptures and better understand how awesome, as it were, the incarnation is understood to now as, to pick up on the earlier point I made from Augustine, the infinite God manifesting himself out of that deep transcendence and actually down into space, into time, and into history, and into a body. Mm. So that's why Christianity and its leading thinkers begin to absorb these concepts from, from Platonism. And so it isn't so much that they were Platonists, it's that they had picked up on the leading ideas of their time, which Augustine in his confessions said Christ intended that he pick up on before he then turned to the study of the scriptures. 
Mm. So that's kind of a quick presentation, as it were, of some of the elements that went into this transition in the period and the way in which monotheism emerged, and then especially how Christianity became the most successful articulation of both of these trends, transcendence and monotheism. And we, and we might pick up on some of those uh, elements again further. Now, I'm Any uh, remarks on this? Matthew? Yeah, you know, I'm really eager to move to Augustine and, and some of the specifics uh, that you just hinted at. But maybe we should also tackle uh, a thorny issue here because some might say, well, or, or they might even object and say, well, hold on, isn't when we look at Platonist history, isn't it the case that Plato is an Aristotle and Plotinus, don't they differ from one another? And so how can we even talk about Platonism as if it's this uh, unified system of beliefs or outlook on the world? You know, some might even object at this point that we can't even then move to Christian Platonism because Platonism itself is is such a diverse and uh, unpredictable uh, movement. John, how, how sure. do you respond sure, to that sure. type of, of objection? Well, first of all, it, it's absolutely true that Platonism is a very, very complex tradition, 350 years older than, at least, than, than Christianity, and plenty of time to have ramified views on all sorts of things. Moreover, the writings of Plato are contradictory. Right? Plato's own thinking seems to have developed and if you read the dialogues, Plato actually criticizes his own theories, right? So yes, the, the, the beginnings of Platonism is very complex, and then it goes through multiple periods. When we classically talk about Platonism in the Christian era, we're talking about what scholars sometimes call Middle Platonism or then Neoplatonism. And these are forms of Platonism that concentrated largely on the dialogues that we often call the middle period dialogues, the Phaedo, the Phaedrus, the Republic, the Symposium, mm. also that later dialogue, the Timaeus. Right? So these are the ones that, that tend to be the dialogues that Platonists in the period used as the foundation for their, for their thinking. Now, when we talk about Christian Platonism, no one means that these Christians were primarily Platonists. It's just a term that scholars started using, I think early in the 20th century, just to pick out the fact that in the scholastic period, we often refer to Christian Aristotelianism when we talk about people like Aquinas. People started to use the term Christian Platonism in order to identify those figures more influenced by platonic ways of doing philosophy, Dionysius, the Areopagite, Augustine, figures like that. And so it's, it's a term that's not meant to have, you know, a sort of fundamentalist list of, you know, here are the 10 things that you have to be to be, to be a Platonist. Mm. It's really just a, a scholarly term that's used to pick out certain characteristics among Christian philosophers. Now, one thing that we should relax about is, remember, all of these people is, are, are, are Christians, and I think C.S. Lewis is a good example. Um, mm. Lots of Christians then feel like they need to think through a lot of the elements and issues that come up when we read Scripture oh. and we think about the deposit of the creeds. And, and so naturally, you start doing philosophical reflection, and to do that, you find yourself looking at various philosophical traditions to, to develop the tools for that reflection. This is why people often call um, C.S. Lewis a Christian place. So that's something that is sort of the use of elements from various philosophical traditions by Christians in order to think through the deposit of our faith. And this, and this goes on right down in the contemporary uh, age. I, I'm reminded that you find people referring these days to Christian phenomenology. Right? Phenomenology is a major tradition in continental philosophy. And I remember back in the days when I was a graduate student at Brown, back in the 70s, 
a leading Christian phenomenologist was coming to Harvard to give a summer seminar for a couple of weeks and graduate students all over the place were invited. And I thought about going up and I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be too much trouble, blah, blah, blah. Right? Now this guy is head of the World Phenomenological Congress. So and he's a Christian. So I thought, well, it'd be interesting, but I didn't make it. Two years later, somebody comes out on a balcony at the Vatican and announces that this famous Christian phenomenologist had been elected Pope. <laughs> John Paul II, right? So the fact that we call him a Christian phenomenologist doesn't impeach his Christianity, right? Yeah. It's just the philosophical tradition that, and he was eminent, even in, you know, in the secular philosophical world, as a philosopher, mm-hmm. right? Who was you know, thinking through and using the categories of phenomenology to try to get at what he thought were the unique characteristics of Christianity in order to articulate them to the secular world around us, right? And that's part of the project here that we need to remember. We see that again in C.S. Lewis. It's, a, it's our effort to speak to the world around us and to do it in ways that both allow us to better understand our own tradition, but also to represent it to those who find it very difficult to understand. Mm. So I don't know whether that's a helpful way of thinking about it, but I wouldn't get too hung up on you know, the substance of Christian Platonism, because in fact, Christian Platonists have varied all the way down, depending on what elements in the Platonic tradition they found useful. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We are taking a break from our conversation on the Credo podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology. And this November, November 13th to be exact, the evening before ETS, Uh, we will have our kickoff inaugural lecture in San Antonio, Texas. To deliver that lecture, we have asked Carl Truman to give an address called Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I hope you will join me for this lecture, and you can register by going to credomag.com. There you will find a page for the Center of Classical Theology, which will tell you all about Carl Truman, when the lecture will take place, and how you can register today. John, maybe using uh, Augustine, we, you've mentioned him already, in fact, in his Confessions, though it also comes up in his City of God. Using Augustine as a, a concrete example might might actually bring this into full color. When we talk about the inner self, in fact, you just mentioned that a minute ago, I mean, Augustine really capitalizes on this discovery because in his confessions, it's not merely that he starts to read the Platonists, they correct his materialistic understanding of of divinity, which then opens the world of Scripture to him, starts to prepare the way for him to, to think through a different paradigm. Could God be transcendent? But it also affects, and you alluded to this, it also affects how Augustine can then interpret Scripture, that before he was a bit turned off by Scripture. Now, part of that was because of his affinity for Cicero and and the type of rhetoric that he found so elevating. But then as he begins to read the Platonists and starts to move towards a transcendent understanding of reality itself— all of a sudden, his hermeneutic of Scripture changes because now he doesn't have to confine himself to a literalistic interpretation, but actually can affirm there is a spiritual meaning that, that's intended even in the text itself. John, help us here because um, I think for some of our listeners, they may think, okay, well, yes, that's fine that Platonism has this really revolutionary uh, understanding of, of transcendent reality over against materialism. But they may be a bit suspicious as to how that should actually influence or be engaged with or perhaps even intersect with Christian belief. How does Augustine embody that, that paradox itself? Well, what Augustine says is that until he could grasp this notion of transcendence, he found it very difficult to solve the problem of evil Mm. and very difficult to understand what God might be. 
And he says that once he got this idea, right, then he could look at the scriptures, as you just mentioned, and see deeper spiritual meaning in them, which he hadn't seen before. And so one of the things we need to perhaps realize is that the revolution that we're talking about here, the coming of this idea of transcendence, is one that was successful, right? The most Christians today wouldn't think that, you know, NASA should be uh, listening for signals, right, from uh, from outer space, (laughs) uh, from the divine or from angels. You know know what I'm saying? In, in, In other words, we vacuumed out spatiality and temporality in our thinking about God um, and our understanding of uh, prayer and other things have been influenced precisely by people like Augustine. So in a way, this is a revolution like the Copernican revolution you know, that we don't think about anymore. We've absorbed some of these lessons. So I don't think that there's reason for you know trepidation because I've often said to people, you know, forget thinking about it as Platonism. Just think about it in terms of the ideas involved. Divine infinity, divine omnipresence, right? These are the ideas that, as a result of Augustine, come down through the entire Western tradition and because of the Greek fathers influenced in the same way through the the Orthodox Eastern tradition. So in a way, we've, we've absorbed these ideas, and we bring them to our reading of Scripture all the time. So in a way, it's not that some foreign elements were brought into the picture at some point, although, uh, you know, what Augustine says in the work of the Confessions, that, and here he's echoing the thought of earlier Christians, Platonism and this idea of transcendence is, as he says, like the gold of the, of the Egyptians. Right, that the Israelites took with them. It was intended by God that these ideas should emerge so that Christianity would be better able to understand the, uh, the fundamental elements of the Christian faith. And if you think about it, that's really what's going on with the Nicene uh, the tradition, right? It's coming to, to think through the complexities of the elements of the Trinity and using terms like homoousion, right? Sameness of substance, right? In order to articulate that, that kind of philosophical language is exceptionally useful for the articulation of orthodoxy. And indeed, if you think about the elements of the Trinity in material ways, you have a tough time sorting out that concept. But if you think about it, using this immaterialist logic, suddenly we realize that the complex enfolding and interpenetration that's behind the concept right, of the Trinity and the elements or persons becomes much, much, much more interesting and easier to get at. Mm-hmm. So my point is, there's a kind of conceptual vocabulary that people like Augustine and the other Nicenes found extraordinarily useful right, in order to sort through and understand what they're reading in Scripture. Mm. You know, John, I think one of the most telling components of Augustine's journey is not just his engagement with Platonism, but the way he transforms it. And perhaps we could use any number of words to describe how he does this. But uh, just to give you know a, a, an example here, uh, isn't it fascinating that in the Platonic tradition, you have all kinds of discussions, sometimes even debate, over theories of uh, forms or ideas? How is it that, say, all the, the little truths and, and goodness and, and beauty of this world, how is it that they participate in uh, that which is universal and, and absolute? This rich discussion uh, is not lost on on Augustine. In fact, uh, he starts to contribute to it himself as he starts to say, well, maybe uh, it's not so much that these ideas are out 
there in, in, in a world of their own, but could they be even in the mind of God? And, and this starts to, right. I mean, Augustine really runs with it at this point to say, try to determine, okay, how can I actually bring the truth uh, that I see within Platonism to its proper fulfillment, which involves correction, but also uh, advances Augustine's own thought and sometimes even his apologetic in all kinds of ways. I mean, that's just one example there. How would you say, though, when you look at Augustine, because you've spent so much time on him, how does he, yes, uh, on the one hand, he appropriates Platonism, but he seems to go further to correct it at times, sometimes in, in a very stern way to say, no, Platonism is, if we just take raw Platonism here, this is actually quite contradictory to Christianity. But then how at other sure. times does he transform some of its ideas to actually bring about a, a proper outlook on reality? Specifically, I mean, I can't help but think of the confessions again, because he tends to do this the closer and closer he moves to the Word in John 1, Christ himself, yes. and, and perhaps in a way that, right. uh, on the one hand, Platonists might have gravitated towards, okay, you're, you're talking about the Word, okay, we know what, what that's about, but then he surprises them by saying, well, this Word is made flesh. <laughs> Talk to us about Augustine's path here from Platonism to a Christian Platonist understanding of, say, the, in, the Incarnation. Augustine was never a Platonist. In, in antiquity, when you became a philosopher, um, you know, you, you joined the group. And it was, as has been said many times, great scholar Pierre Ardot, behind this, um, in antiquity, philosophy was a way of life. Right? You, you joined up. Right? And, and you lived in a certain way. And what the Platonists were promising, their adherence, and it, it's worth mentioning that you know, it was kind of touch and go there in the middle of the fourth century. Some, some of our listeners will remember Julian the Apostate, the, uh, the, the emperor who uh, had been brought up a Christian and went back to paganism. Well, well he, was, he was a Platonist, right? So in this period, the Christians knew the Platonists were a different group. And here's what the Platonists promised. They were promising salvation through philosophy. Hmm. That's what there's a saying in, among the Platonists, that the philosopher is his own savior. Right? You don't need a savior in the, in the specifically the, the, the tradition of, of Plotinus and Porphyry that, that Augustine was familiar with. There are other types around, but I want to concentrate on that for just a moment. So. How, do you, how are you saved? Well, you're saved by going down into yourself and finding the strength within the deepest part of your soul and pulling yourself up, right? And you, Aquinas says this over and over again, you have the power within you to do this, right? It's kind of like a, a Nike ad or something. It was just do it. You have the power. And Augustine writes the confession to show that that is not true. And what he says very clearly is, uh, and I, I, again, I urge uh, uh, our listeners to take a look at Book 7 of the Confessions, which, which concludes hammering Platonists on this point. And what he says is, you do not have the power within you. My life has demonstrated this to me. I need a power beyond myself. And that power is the power of Christ through the incarnation, which has been made available to human beings so that in fact, the transcendent God can be reached, but reached only because of the grace of Christ. And what he says is mm. that Platonists are presumptuous. They're prideful. That's his big and he and he says the Platonists only see the way. They have a kind of grasp, but they can't get there. They do not have the power. He says it is going to lead you to the home, which is what we're heading to, which is that divine and transcendent heaven, which he calls the heaven of heaven, the heaven beyond the material heaven. And he says this over and over again, both in the Confessions and the City of God. He says the, 
you know, uh, there's a wonderful image that he gives. He says, you know, the Platonists are like people who are, who are on a woody summit, he says, and they're looking across to the mountainous homeland that they want to get to. But they can't succeed in making that journey through all the difficulties of the valleys, as it were, of life. It's only, he says, through the power of Christ that we have the capacity to make that journey through our lives so that we will come to that transcendental home of a heaven beyond this earth. And, you know, it's worth remembering in antiquity, right, that people still thought, again, in fairly material terms, you know, that hell was down there below in the earth and that heaven was somewhere up in some spatial zone in, in, in the physical heavens. They often thought it was uh, in, in one of the planets or something like that. Uh, the sun was often regarded as the source of actually you know, the, the location of the divine. This is called solar monotheism. So what Augustine's doing is saying, you know, Platonists have given us a great advance, but they are totally wrong in their soteriology. They're totally wrong in their articulation of how we can achieve salvation. And so what Christian thinkers in this period do is get hold of that point and hammer it home. Right? Do you really think you're divine? Do you really think you have the power to transform your lives? Do you really think you have that capacity? Because if you realize that you don't, then you're going to need a power from God to affect that transition. And that's the point that Augustine makes very, very clearly, both from a theoretical standpoint, but also in terms of his actual autobiography, he says over and over again, he was addicted to all sorts of things. He couldn't pull himself out. And it was only by the power of Christ that he was able to change. And so it's that, that ethical component that the Platonists are unable uh, to supply. Mm. So this is, you know, this is the essential part of the Christian tradition in this period. It, it sort of takes elements that are around in the culture and that are, you know, remarkable and, and revolutionary in thought, but at the same time are construed by Christians as being presumptuous, as prideful, mm. uh, as people who, uh, you know, have a kind of elite view of themselves. And it's worth reminding ourselves of a couple of things. If you're going to be a Platonist, you needed, you needed some wealth because, you know, it's a long journey. Uh, of studying, uh, Platonists used to used to have a whole whole program. You know, we think of it now as coming down from the, from the you know the liberal arts tradition, right? You had to do all sorts of studies in, in all all the different areas of sciences, mathematics. You had to work out. They had breathing exercises. You know, I mean, it was it, the best uh, analog to all of these things in ancient Platonism are elements in Hinduism, right? A related tradition, actually historically related to ancient paganism. And uh, so that's what they, that's what these Platonists were up to. And uh, moreover, they believed in reincarnation. So, you know, if you can't pull it off and it's from their standpoint in this life, maybe you'll get another shot at it. So, but for the, for the Christians, that's all of those things are, are, are unacceptable. And what, what Augustine says is um, Christianity is for everyone. It's not just for fairly wealthy philosophers who have the wherewithal to engage in this highly expensive program mm. to everyone. And this is one of the reasons that, again, our listeners, if they read Augustine, should, should notice the tremendous significance he puts um, on his mother, Monica, right, who's a stand-in for all average Christians. She probably wasn't even literate. And yet... In the Confessions, in a beautiful section in Book 9, just before she dies, Augustine tells us that Monica and he himself, Augustine, have what's called the vision in Ostia, the beatific vision. 
right? Granted, he says, to both of them together as they begin talking about heaven before her death. And he says, we had no idea that she was going to get sick and die. And while they're having this conversation about what heaven is like, the spirit of Christ lifts them up to the eternal, he says, to divine wisdom, and they, they together see it. And then they are dropped back, he says, into space, into time, and back into their com- conversation, which to him assures him then that his mother will, in fact, after her death, uh, go to heaven. So she is someone who achieves the ultimate uh, of what philosophers are after, but she does it simply as a good practicing Christian woman. Now, John, you mentioned the beatific vision there, and maybe that is a great way to conclude our conversation because some of our listeners may be curious at this point, okay, I I have a a bit of an understanding now of Platonism. I have given Augustine. I have an understanding of how it was transformed, corrected, but then also appropriated. Your mention of the beatific vision is fascinating because they may also be wondering, why are we even having this conversation today? Uh, why, why is it significant that we would, uh, I mean, John, you've written a whole, you've edited a whole book called Christian Platonism. Why should we uh, care? Why should this even influence uh, how we think about philosophy, uh, the Christian faith, theology, or even the Christian life today? You mentioned a minute ago the beatific vision. John, would you say this is one example uh, that uh, takes us from this ancient conversation to the practicality of the of Christian living today that makes Christian sure. Platonism so relevant? Right. Well, here's here's what I would uh, here's what I would emphasize. One of the things that um, we are, in a sense pulled by today, various sorts of materialism, scientific materialism, and we're sort of pulled into thinking that uh, our real goal is knowing about things, right? The spectator knowledge, the objective knowledge that science as an appraisal of reality presents itself as. The great Again, Christian philosopher of our own time, Charles Taylor, one of the great figures, uh, calls this uh, a, view, a view from nowhere. Right? He, of course, has written extensively on secularism. Now, the tradition that we're talking about here of Augustine, um, Christian transcendentalism, if you prefer, or simply the, you know, the ancient Nicene tradition, because that's really what 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 it is. Uh, has a different view, because if you think about that brief mention of the beatific vision or these other mentions that I had here of, of his encounter, Augustine's encounter with divine wisdom, the real key to Augustine's thinking and the Nicene Father's thinking is that our goal as Christians is not knowing about God. It's communion with God, mm. right? It's coming into a immediate relationship with God through our lives, through our interior prayer, right? Through our through our contemplation of the scriptures, so that and and for some of us through sacrament, because what we're after is that presence that moves beyond spectator knowledge, so that we are built into Christ, so that we participate in Christ. And this is a very different way of approaching the matter of how we live our lives from the materialist, secular understanding of knowledge around us. And I think the Christian tradition is deeply invested in, especially the the, the Nicene tradition is deeply invested in this idea of achieving immediate, deep, communion with God, 
at the root of the soul with Christ, through Christ. And that is a very unique and powerful element in Christian tradition that over and over again has been accentuated by some of these figures that we sometimes call Christian Platonists, right? Figures that emphasize contemplation, figures that emphasize the, the soul's capacity to um, achieve a sense of, of, of the immediacy of God, Christ, however, whatever theological language you want to use. Sometimes we, these figures are called mystical figures, but I think it's only because those who, you know, sort of see the tradition as primarily that sort of sort of distancing knowing or sometimes surprised or shocked by figures who make claims like Augustine, that in fact that the practice of Christianity can be a deepening of intimacy with the divine. And that, I think, is one of the keys to the complexities of the Nicene tradition. They put so much energy into explaining the fundamental connections between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, not because they wanted to sort of you know, lay, lay out a chart, as it were, an organizational chart of the divine, but to suggest that we, as Christians, have the capacity to tap into those powers in the intimacy of our souls through divine grace to achieve that kind of communion and participation in the divine. So that's my take on why this tradition still matters, because I think it helps us as Christians to show the uniqueness and the power of the tradition that we're committed to. Right? And the incarnation, as it were, is not just a, an odd story about the past. It's about Christ's incarnation in our own lives today. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters. <laughs>